0: Well, good morning. It's been an eventful week and a great week, and it's great to see you. um, Today, as uh, Brent mentioned, we're continuing this series on getting real and getting real with God. And uh, Brent, I thought you did an awesome job last week as we looked at 1 John chapter 1 and talked about the importance of us being authentic and real and to be people that walk in the light, that walk in the truth, um, that we get real with ourselves and we get real with God. But, you know, I find it so amazing that the natural world, when you look at the natural world, there is authenticity and there is integrity. I mean, when you look at the natural world, there is authenticity and there is integrity. I mean, what you see is what you get. Can you say that with me? What you is what you get. What you see on the outside is what you get on the inside. Take a. Got my lunch here. Take an apple. Is that an apple? It's an apple. I mean, what you see on the outside is. That's a good apple. It's what you get on the inside. What you see is what you get. Got something else in my lunch here. I'm eating healthy. What's this? Are you sure it's a banana? Yeah. And and what you see on the outside is what I'm going to get on the inside. It's a banana. It's a little ripe, but it's a banana. What you see is what you get. All of nature is authentic. All of nature is real. Until, until you come to uh, human beings, when it comes to us, what you see on the outside isn't necessarily what you get on the inside, is it? I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest, right? I mean, we're kind of into what we call image management. I mean, how many of you this morning are trying to look older on the outside? How many of us are trying to look y- younger on the outside, right? Come on, let's be honest. You guys aren't raising your hand. You know it's true because what you see is not what you get when it comes to human beings. I mean, I, honest and truthfully, no one raised their hand for wanting to look older. I honest and truthfully remember my first church. I was in my early 20s, and I wanted gray hair. I thought I'd be more distinguished as a pastor at this Baptist church if I had gray hair. You know, I, I was looking forward to the day. Uh, can you believe that? You know? Um, because we, as, as human beings, we, we, t- we try image management, we try to project an image of how we want people to see us. It's Not what we see is what you get. Often we're inauthentic, and as, as Brent pointed out so well last week, that all of us, if we're honest and truthful with ourselves in 1 John, it tells us that we're all inauthentic because we all sin. And we've all been damaged by sin, but the question is, what do we do when we sin? Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, do we just try to cover it up and run from God? Or do we confess it? Are we authentic about our inauthenticity, our, our, our sin? Do we cover it up or do we run to God rather than running from God? You know, it's, it's interesting that how we as human beings, if we're honest and real, we, we all crave authenticity. I mean, we really want to be honest and authentic with ourselves. We, we really want to have relationships with people that we can be ourselves and be a- authentic and real. And we really want to be authentic with our relationship with God. But we're afraid. And because of our fear, we keep on our mask and we wear our mask and we, we stay in isolation, we stay separated. Now today, in business, uh, in marketing business... Uh, they have found that authenticity sells. How many of you know that? Authenticity uh, sells. You, raise your hand. You know that? Authenticity sells? I mean, it's, it's big business these days. Marketers know it. So they try to help you as a, as a business to look authentic, to look real. Matter of fact, we saw this explosion begin to happen about two decades ago with the talk shows on TV with Oprah. And you can think what you want to think of Oprah, but she is authentic And she's made hundreds of millions of dollars of being real and dealing with real problems in real life on TV. I mean, there's an explosion of talk shows. And from that came what? Reality TV. And on all these reality TV shows. And now there's even stations called, you know, the real TV. Because we, as human beings, we crave authenticity. We want authenticity. And now what's happened with some of these reality TV shows, we're finding they're saying it's a reality TV show, but it's really not, Right? It's canned, you know. I mean, it ruins the whole thing. Discovery Channel, you know, you're just thinking this is real. It's so funny. But now you realize they're practicing and rehearsing this, what perceives to be real. It's, it's um, authentically inauthentic. It's authentically inauthentic because authenticity sells. In Jesus' day, there was a group of men called the Pharisees. And they were authentically inauthentic what you saw on the outside is not what you got on the inside they were authentically inauthentic and if we're not careful as Christ followers we can become authentically inauthentic that what you see and how we act and how we pretend and how we behave on the outside is really not in congruency with our heart with our character Now, the epistle of 1 John is kind of known as the reality letter of the New Testament. It's the reality letter of the New Testament. It helps us and causes us and challenges us to be real, to be real with ourselves, to look deep within ourselves, to see if we're the real deal, to see if we're really a follower of Jesus Christ, or are we just being authentically inauthentic? So if you have your electronic device or your hard copy, and both are great, by the way, both are great, all right, turn with me to uh, 1 John chapter 5, now 1 John, towards the end of your Bible, not the Gospel of John, same writer, different book, 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to kind of like cheat this morning, I know we're talking about being authentic and being real, but we're going to kind of cheat this morning um, and read the end of the book to help us hopefully understand the whole book. So as, as Brent told us last week, uh, John was one of the 12, uh, 12 apostles, 12 disciples. He was part of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. Um, he uh, lived in Jerusalem where all the disciples were lived initially for, for the first couple of decades. And, and then when uh, uh, Jerusalem became under a lot of persecution, he skedaddled. That's uh, Greek for he got out quickly out of uh, Jerusalem around A.D. 67, before Jerusalem fell to the Romans and the temple uh, was destroyed in A.D. 70. So he takes off out of there, like all the other disciples take off out of there. It appears that John ends up in Ephesus, a big, beautiful seaport city. Um, And there at Ephesus, he begins to plant and work and help the church there. And he's probably writing this letter called 1 John to the believers there at Ephesus, um, around A.D., uh, 85, 80, ni- 80, 80, 90, right in there. Um, he is writing it to this church, or, or he could have been writing it to those churches that he talks about. John also wrote the book of Revelation at the very end of our Bible, uh, Revelations, right? Um, say, which one is it? Revelation. That's right. Okay, yes. Um, I knew when I said it, I said it wrong. Um, and uh, in the first three chapters, he talks about the seven um, cities, the seven churches of Asia Minor. So it might be going to those seven churches as well. What I'm trying to say is this little letter is, is written for us. It's written for our church. All right? And then in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John states kind of like the main theme, and he kind of comes back to this main theme as you read this book over and over again, that main theme of kind of getting real with God and... And he kind of, John kind of wrote in a circular motion, he would talk about this for a little while, then he'd go up and talk about this for a little while, and then he'd come back and talk about this, and then he'd go over and talk about this, and then he'd go back over, I mean, it can be a little confusing. Um, now, the Apostle Paul was more linear, you know, but John's kind of talking in, 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 in a circular motion, but he has a theme, and uh, we're going to see one of these themes. And so as we look at the end of the book, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we kind of see his purpose in writing. John says this, I write these things. My, my purpose in writing you is to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may, what's the word? I'm writing to you, those that you say you follow Christ, you believe in Christ. I'm writing these things to you so that you will what? You'll know. You will know that you have eternal life. Now there's eight different Greek verbs that we interpret the English word know or knowledge or to know. And the one used here is the Greek verb ginosko. It means to, to know by firsthand experience. It means to know beyond a shadow of doubt. John said, I'm writing. I'm writing for the purpose so that you will know, that you'll know without a shadow of doubt that you are in Christ, that you will have eternal life, that your soul will live forever. You don't have to hope. You don't have to wonder. I'm writing this little letter so, so you can measure yourself, so you can be authentic and real with yourself and see if you're really in or if you're not. I want you to take off the mask. I want you to see the truth about yourself. I want you to know. And he kind of gives us in 1 John chapter 2, now back up to 1 John chapter 2, he kind of gives us the, uh, the test of authentication. He kind of tells us this is the test of, of helping you to see if you're the real deal. And he kind of gives us three tests in this chapter to see if we're really true followers of Jesus Christ or maybe we're just being authentically inauthentic. All right? Are you with me? So let's pick up reading in uh, John chapter 2 with verse 1. John begins with these words. He says, my little children. Doesn't that sound condescending, you know? Um, it's not. It's a term of affection. John's probably about 75 years of age here. He's like a spiritual father, like a spiritual grandfather to uh, these believers in these churches or the church at Ephesus. So it's a, he's saying, my dear children, man, I, I, I love you. I see you as like my dear children, my children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Man, I don't want you living a lifestyle of sinning but of holiness. But if anyone does sin, we have a what? We have an advocate. We have an advocate. We have, we have a, an attorney. Who will stand in our defense. We have an advocate with the Father. And his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Is there a better advocate than one who has lived a perfect life? One that lived without sin? He is our advocate. And he is the propitiation. Can you say that with me? He is the what? Propitiation. It's a great theological word that means payment. He's the atonement. He's the sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, this is very important that we understand this. It creates a lot of confusion when we don't. Finding Jesus Christ is the beginning of the journey, not the end. Too often, the Christian community looks at finding Jesus as the, the end all, the solution to all their problems. All their sins are gone away. All their sins are forgiven, so they sin no more. All their problems are gone away because they have, they have Jesus now. That's not what John is saying or implying or teaching here. He's saying life is a journey, and, and it's tough. Most of the time, even if you have faith in Jesus Christ, even if you're following God faithfully, just because you are following God doesn't mean all your problems, all your struggles, all your sin goes away. Finding Jesus is the beginning of the journey. It's not the end. He is the propitiation for all our sins. He is the perfect sacrifice that, that turns away the wrath of God. John is saying every Christian is a work in progress. But here's the test. Here's the test for you to take to see if you are the real deal. Or if you're just being authentically inauthentic. Test number one is this, obedient living. Look at verse 3. And by this we, what's the word? No, is it up there? By this we know, and it's that same word, gnosko, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, is inauthentic. And the truth is not in him. Now, let me be very clear here in what John means by keeping his commandments. Or this can become very confusing and can lead to damaging conclusions. Let me kind of explain this by asking the question: what, what, what's the essence of Christianity? I mean, what is Christianity all about? I mean, if I mean, in, in, in um, Sunday school when you were a kid or a catechism, and the teacher asked the question, what was the answer the kids used to always say? That's right, Jesus is the answer to everything. Jesus. So let let me ask it again. What is the essence of Christianity? Jesus. You guys weren't in Sunday school, okay? Uh, What is Christianity all about? Jesus. Jesus. He's our advocate. He's the propitiation for our sins. It's all about him. That's why we call it Christianity and not religianity. Because it's all about Christ. Now, word has it on the street that the essence of Christianity is rule-keeping. What Christianity is about down at Palm Beach Community Church and other churches, it's about keeping His commandments. And people's perception, be it right or be it wrong, that if you strip away all the excesses, you'll discover that the essence of Christianity is rule-keeping. And let's let's be honest, can we? Let's get real with God. Isn't that what many of us think? I mean, God forbid. But if you were to die tonight, and you were to stand before God, and God was to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you in? Why should I let you in? Why should I let you in? How would you respond? Would you say, I lived a good life. I've kept most of the, the rules. I haven't killed anybody. I've kept the Ten Commandments. See, we kind of believe that the essence, the basis on which we get to eternal life in heaven is based upon our human performance. It's based upon keeping the rules. Can I be forthright and honest with you? As long as large numbers of people equate Christianity with rule-keeping with not being gay or having an abortion, and you can name the rules, whatever the rules are, as long as large numbers of people equate Christianity with rule-keeping, then large numbers of people are going to stay away from Christianity and spend a Christless eternity in hell. And if you'll take a penetrating look at the core of Christianity, you will not find a code or a creed you will not find rules and regulation. You will find it's all about a person. God's very Son, Jesus Christ, our advocate, who willingly laid down his life for our sins. The essence of Christianity is Christ. It's the gospel, it's the good news that God loves us and he wants a relationship with us. So he, he sent his very own Son. To live a sinless life and to give his life and to die so that we can live. The essence of Christianity is Christ. Now if you're in relationship with Christ, you need to obey him. You obey him. We Read in Matthew chapter 28 that once you become a believer, you profess faith in Christ, one of the first things you do is you obey him by being publicly baptized. You identify with him. You obey him and you begin to live a life in obedience to him. You see, rule-keeping is not the essence of Christianity, but it's the evidence of a life changed by Jesus Christ. It's not the essence, but it is the evidence. And as John puts it, if you know God, you should be living an obedient life. That's the first test. So, are you living an obedient life? Are you obeying God in, in every area of your life? Or are you choosing not to? Are you the real deal? Or are you just authentically inauthentic? Test number two is this obedient living, number one. Test number two is genuine love. Genuine love. Look at verse five. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected, the love of God is demonstrated. By this we may, what's the word? No, there it is again. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, is a believer in him, has faith in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, in which Jesus lived. So how did Jesus walk? How did he live? It was the path of genuine love. It was that path that led him to the cross. You see, love is more than a feeling. It's an ethical response to do the right thing. And Jesus lived the life of love. See, love is the proof of our faith. Love is the proof of our faith. Look at verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you, no new commandment. This really isn't a new commandment, but but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the Shema, you know, and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We talked about loving God with all our heart and loving our neighbor. It's an old commandment. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, and at times the same. But it's also a new commandment because Jesus brought life and light to that commandment remember we talked about the 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 good samaritan and what it means to love our neighbor and the fact that the world and everybody is our neighbor and we need to love them and they had a kind of a false understanding of that they had a very limited view of loving that we don't need to go back to that message um all right uh the old commandment is the word i've heard verse 8 at the same time it is a new commandment that i'm writing to you which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. If we will genuinely love others, then the light of God, the light of Christ, is living in us. It's the light of love. Here's the proof. That you are the real deal. That you are who you say you are. You love. You genuinely love others. People. Look at verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and what's the word hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brothers in darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Isn't it amazing that when you let hurt and fear and hate get into your heart, it darkens your world. It darkens your outlook. It blinds you to the truth. It blinds you to the truth about yourself. In college, I became um, very good friends. Probably one of my best friends was a guy by the name of Charles David. We used to give him a hard time. We used to tell him he has two last names, you know, or two first names. We call him David Charles and Charles David. And uh, he was from Rhodesia at the time. He moved, he came over to America, to Memphis, and he was going to school like I was to become a minister. And uh while he was there, the country changed the name from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, so we always would tell him he didn't have a country and he would always laugh, and, and we became very good friends, and I noticed that when we take spring breaks and, and holiday breaks and uh, Christmas breaks, we would all leave college and school, and Charles would stay back in the dorm, and And uh, Charles didn't have the money to go all the way back to Zimbabwe, or, you know, it wasn't even a possibility, and so I, I came home from school one time, and I said, Mom and Dad, do you think I could invite Charles David to uh, come and to be with us on the holidays and through the vacation times, and my parents were always very inclusive, and I thank God for that. Now, my grandfather, he was from Macon, Georgia. A little different story. This is 35 years ago. He kind of got upset that I brought Charleston, but we won't go there today. That's another story. But I remember so distinctly the first time I brought Charles home with us, and we were doing different things and showing him the area, and we got a boat, and we went out fishing. And uh, we were fishing, and we were trolling, and Charles kept ask, asking to drive the boat. And so we let Charles drive the boat, and, and he was kind of going all over the place, you know, and the lines were getting ready to get crossed. And I was back in the back, and I, I turned to Charles, not even realizing what I was saying. I said, Charles, quit driving like a black man and drive like a white man. Now, Charles didn't even hear what I said, but I heard what I said. I said, Charles, I'm sorry. He says, you're sorry for what? I'm I'm sorry for what I just said. But it was the most powerful thing in the world to live and to have as a friend, Charles David. Because it helped me see my heart. It helped me see little statements I said growing up as a kid. You know, drive the car like a, uh, don't drive like a black man, drive like a white man. Little statements that we hear. All of a sudden, they became very obvious to me. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still where? In darkness. There's no place for prejudice. There's no place for racism in the heart of God's followers. We need to love each other. And if we don't, we're not the real deal. And God's not in our heart. Now, being in relationship with God, it doesn't mean we're perfect. Christians are imperfect people. Pastors and priests are imperfect people. We all struggle with our humanness, with our pride, with our prejudice. But they will know we are Christians by our love. And if there's no love, there's no Christ. That's the test see if you're the real deal. It's your genuine love for your neighbor. For people. Everywhere. That's the test. Because that's the life that Jesus lived. So living obediently is test number one. Test number two is what? Genuine what? Okay, let's try this again. Test number one is what? Obedient living. Test number two is genuine love. Test number three is fervent devotion. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, the love of God is not in him. In other words, you're inauthentic. You're not the real deal. Now what does not John mean here by not loving the world is he is he talking about not loving the world of nature not loving the world of creation no that's not what he's talking about we're supposed to love the world we're supposed to be stewards of this earth we need to take care of this earth we need to enjoy this earth I love the, the preserve. People call it a ditch behind my house. It's, I guess it's a matter of perspective. But I love the woods behind my house. I lo- a couple of weeks ago, I saw a Florida panther. But That's another sermon for another day. I've been dying to tell you that. But uh, one of these days, I'll weave it into a good message. But it was so incredible. But we don't need to go there. I, I, I love it. That's not what John's talking about here. My wife loves the beach. I quite don't understand that with skin like mine. She just loves the beach, you know. John's not saying we're not supposed to love The world of creation, the world of nature. John's not saying we're not supposed to love the world of people. That's not what he's talking about he says don't love the world. He's not talking about people. It was the same John that said what in John 3.16? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, John's not talking about the world of people. John's not talking about the world of nature. John is talking about a a devotion to a world system that opposes God, that's against God. John's talking about we as human beings, and we all have this tendency to want to idolize and love the things of this world rather than the things of God. He kind of explains what he's talking about in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... Our fleshly desires and and the desires of the eyes, the desire to always craving and wanting more and more and more, and the pride of life. This is not from the Father. This is not from God. But it's from the world. You see, we should guard against these human desires and appetites that diminish our fervor and our devotion to Christ. If we're the real deal, our affections and our appetites ought to be for the things of God. Not the things of this world. We ought to be seeking first God's kingdom. Not this kingdom. And as we live our life, the things of this world, they should be growing strangely dim. They should be diminishing in value to us. The truth is, life is difficult because we are in a struggle. We're in a struggle of devotion. The world is crying out for our devotion, and God wants our devotion. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world. And we're in this spiritual battle, this spiritual battle of of light versus darkness, of God's kingdom versus the world's kingdom. And one more thing John says in verse 17 about the world. And the world is, what's the word he used? It's what? It's passing away. It's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides, lives forever forever. The world is passing. Its appearance of permanence is deceptive. History is not the endless cycle of circles, but the earth, the world, it's moving towards a divine purpose. So follow God with your full devotion. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the struggle. Don't just live with a destination mindset. Follow God with all your heart. Experience God in the struggle. You see, the struggle can bring us to God. The struggle can lead us to God because whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, the virtue is always in our effort. It's not necessarily in the outcome. It's in our effort. It's always doing the right thing and doing the best thing the right way. Augustine, who was one of the great, great theologians of the church, especially the early church, lived about 350, 400 years after Christ. He was uh, preaching a sermon on this passage, and he said this. He said, Hold fast to Christ, for you he became temporal, so that you might partake of eternity. Can we read that together out loud? Hold fast to Christ, for you he became temporal so that you might partake of eternity. He, Christ, became temporal. He was born in a smelly manger. He was falsely accused. He was betrayed by a friend. He suffered the disloyalty of his own disciples. He was beaten, and he died on a wooden cross. He became temporal so that you might partake of eternity. But that choice... That choice to follow God, to fully follow God, that choice is yours. To follow God in the struggle, that choice is mine. That choice is yours. The choice to partake is yours. You can choose to follow Christ or you can choose to ignore Him. But in choosing to ignore Him, you are denying Him. I invite you this morning to partake of Christ. To fervently be devoted to Him. Can we bow our heads in prayer? And with our heads bowed, I'd like for us this morning to kind of get real with God and to take the test of being the real deal. Test number one Are you living an obedient life? Are you? Are you keeping his commandments? Are you making good moral choices? Are you doing the right thing? Are you living an obedient life? If you're not, you might need to get real with God this morning and take off the mask. Say, God, I've been authentically inauthentic. Test number two. Do you genuinely love others? Do you? Do you love others? Or has your heart been discolored and darkened by prejudice and pride? Are you genuinely loving your neighbors? Test number three. Are you fervently devoted to Christ? And are you holding fast to Christ? Are you finding experiencing God in the struggle? Are you following God with full devotion? Are you fervently devoted to Christ? Are you? See, Jesus is the beginning of the journey. He's not the end. And I'd like to invite you to put your faith and trust in Him and Him alone to save you. I'd like to invite you this morning to get real with God and to come clean and acknowledge your sin and partake of Christ. Partake of Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Right now, say, God, I have sinned. I see my heart. What I am on the inside versus what I am on the outside are two different things. And I want to invite Christ to come into my life. Change me. Those of us who are in Christ say, God, help me to find you and experience you in the struggle. God, we're so grateful. We're so thankful for the words of John. Help us to look deeply at the test of being real. And help us to live a real, authentic life. Because in doing so, we give the evidence that we are in you. Help us to live obediently, to genuinely love, and to be fervently devoted to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.